culture surrounded around death, right? Like some cultures celebrate death and, and, and we have this like rent a limousine, get a casket, pre-plan your death. I was laughing at earlier, I walked past this advertisement, have you planned your fu own funeral yet? I was like, whoa, that's a bit intense. Mexico Death Fest is what comes to mind. We should all have a Mexico Death Fest for, for every country. That would probably be a good thing, seeing more death around us, and capsulizing, capsulizing everything, individualizing, and like those little confined spaces where every individual is for themselves and then no elders anymore. Nothing. It's, it's totally ripped apart. I get that sense of like each moment now, uh, once it has passed, it has died. Like I have this like, you feel that kind of loss. If you're really there and, and, and you're looking at what's happening right now, you, you can sense the loss as well of each moment. It's, it's kind of like pretty in a way because th the moment dies for the next one to arise and then the next one dies for another one to arise. And it's just like, you're sad, you're happy, you're sad, you're happy. And it's just like this cycle. I, I kind of get why our, our minds are like going through cycles because this is crazy. This is nuts, you know? And also that the Buddha said not to think of it or that the whole teaching is that we relate to moments like this. We relate to them as losses instead of it's just the way it is. That the instinctual mind or the... Um, the less sophisticated mind, that's the way uh, it relates to reality, is clinging to it, holding on to it, wishing it would be the way it was in the past. But that's not how nature works. That's not how things work. And so we teach ourselves that we don't have to hold on to it. And it can be a celebration uh, of every new moment rather than a loss of every past moment. I think a, a better way to describe it is uh, every moment is arising and passing away. So, and that goes for everything, not just moments. Um, everything is arising and passing away uh, impersonally. So, <sighs> including consciousness, including your dearest, deepest relationships including every attachment you have, including everything you love, everything you, everything you hate. All of it is arising and passing away impersonally. And the Buddha is just telling you, stop and look how, like, this is actually happening. Like, look at what's actually going on. Um, because all of your dukkha is... Um, is born out of the delusion that that it isn't all arising and passing away impersonally that there is a self that can be attached to things majima nikaya 38 <laughs> son of a fisherman <clears throat> hello hello yeah, i think 38 is the is the one with the the pernicious view about uh, consciousness being the thinker, feeler, holding on to craving fear. in that way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah so most, um, I feel like a lot of people who get into um, Buddhism are just into like spirituality as a whole, and they're like, "Oh, Buddhism is like part of that." So they they come with these concepts that uh, there is some kind of ground of being or some sort of being that is your self and that you are that being and that is the source of your happiness. And this is the, um, this is honestly the hardest, it's like the deepest, uh, it's the last barrier of the sense of self to be um, disidentified from and to understand 
as what it really is uh, arising and passing away. So it's impermanent too. Whereas uh, um, most other traditions like, uh, like Hindu traditions mainly will be like, oh, you are not all these other things that are arising and passing away. Like see those as impersonal. And then they get to like the last layer of just pure, of just the bare existence. Um, just like existence itself. I think that I forgot the poly word for it, but just existence. And uh, then they stop there and there they go, oh, that's me. And now um, they're never going to finish the job because <laughs> that's still us clinging. It's clinging to being. So uh, to, to let go of that attachment even is to um, fully realize the Dhamma. So I guess it's not that it's not a bad place to be. Okay, I've heard uh, other people describe it as like it's like being in a really nice like vacation spot, but it's not like the ultimate truth. It's like it's like to, it's better to be in like pure awareness or pure consciousness than it is to be like identified with, uh, for instance, the body or the mind. Um, which are objects of consciousness, if we're going to look at it through that framework. But in the in the framework of the Dhamma, consciousness is the product of a sensory organ or a sense receptor, and the form it's uh, coming in contact with, and through that contact uh, arises consciousness. And without those conditions. There is no arisal of consciousness. So this is the um, this is the understanding of the Dhamma that if we take away the the causes and conditions for the arisal of consciousness, there is no arisal of consciousness. What is and, the uh, dreamless sleep? Um, <laughs> so like people get um, yeah, th that's another question that's like. Um, you can proliferate a lot about that question and you can philosophize about dreamless sleep like oh are you conscious during dreamless dreamless sleep or are you not but um the reality of the matter is that you're not in dreamless sleep right now so <laughs> there's no point talking about it like the dhamma is seeing the reality of the of what the reality of what's happening so the the reality of things not the reality of imagined things. So if you're in dreamless sleep, um, investigate it while you're in it. <laughs> like, but right now you're not in dreamless sleep. So everything you're going to say about it is going to be a projection of the mind. And even if Wrong you have, e even if you have some meditative capacity and you're quite certain that you have developed the ability to, uh, still be aware in your dreamless sleep or, or whatever, something like that. Um, unless you're doing it right now, it's like still like, how, how do you know? How do you know you're aware of sleep if you're not dreamless sleeping right now? It's the same with past life experiences. You may have had, you may have had like a trip, like a, like a, like a trip where you experienced all your past lives and stuff. And like, it may have, that may have come out of um, uh, realizing the Dhamma to an extent that you can have these kinds of experiences. But even then, um, that experience is just an experience um, that's arising and passing away. So, like, does it really matter what the, ontolo the ontological truth of it is? Like, did mm -hmm. you actually go into your past life or not? Or were you just tripping, like, the mind, fab like, the mind creating this experience it doesn't matter the matter the 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 point of emphasis in the dhamma is always just like the reality or the the natural law or the truth of things as as it is right now and uh and that that narrows it down to instead of all these complicated things that somehow got uh wrapped up into buddhism and narrows it down to the the simple, the simple um, practice and the simple truth of 
uh, being wise to or being uh, being awake to uh, the 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 experience of things happening impersonally, arising and passing away impersonally. Whereas if you're not paying attention, all of these things that are appearing and disappearing um, will conspire into uh, the ignorance or delusion that there is a self that is responsible for it. And there's a self that's, uh, there's a self that is some somehow um, a solid real entity that's made out of all these constituent parts. And that's the self that um, causes attachment. And that's the self that causes uh, all of your dukkha. It's the, um, fa- it's, it's fabricated out of uh, not paying attention to what was going on and how things are really unfolding. Um, so the practice is quite simple and that, and I'm, and I'm riffing off the, the ABC of Buddhism that, uh, we discussed in, uh, in the study group, uh, that Buddha Dasa gave a teaching and he, at the end of it, he's like, um, he, he really narrows it down to. Are you paying attention to the ayatanas or not? And he's saying all of this other stuff, all of this other stuff that was around this magical thinking and these other practices that somehow got mixed into the Dhamma were actually ancient Hindu ideas. And they're not what the Buddha taught. The Buddha taught looking at uh, the six sense bases and having wisdom at the point of contact and seeing uh seeing viscerally the nature of these things so you don't say again you don't study about it in a book and you're not going to get it from a lecture either or a dhamma teaching or a sermon or any of these things you have to see for yourself uh what what the actual uh uh what the actual visceral experience you're having in real time is of um um sight consciousness, smell consciousness, taste consciousness, um, sound consciousness, feeling, um, like uh, sensations, uh, the mind and the mind objects. So this is the entire, all of that is the entire composition of your experience. And uh, are you paying attention to how, how, how those things work? Because that's where you live. So that's what you're experiencing. And like, if you're wanting to find out the truth of reality, you pay attention to those things um, rather than thinking about or fabricating about potential experiences, past experiences that you had, uh, uh, wanting things that you don't have. Um, there, there's a almost endless, um, endless capacity for distraction uh, that the mind can go into. But, but uh, the what you're supposed to do is actually really simple, <laughs> and it's really straightforward and direct. Delusion uh, so. is one of the last three fetters. So it's so the the mind is so incredibly inclined to start to conceptualize things slips so fast if you if your if your uh, mindfulness is not on on point <clears throat> yeah and um uh, another thing to understand clearly is that uh um there are these five hindrances so ill will worry um worry and restlessness uh doubt um sloth and torpor and uh i think i'm forgetting the fifth one i don't remember the fifth one but anyways these five hindrances (laughs) these uh these things are an obstruction 
to uh, the mindfulness or the seeing clearly. So these are a barrier um, to the experience of seeing clearly and to the experience of jhana, frankly. Uh, so like these hindrances um, need to be dealt with in a way that is conducive to the cessation of the hindrances. So if you, you can't you can't mindful you can't bu mindfulness bully your way through hindrances and if you can you're probably gonna ha have to go through dark nights of the soul. So um, so what you can do is um, change your view of the hindrances, change your reaction to the hindrances in such a way that that you're not feeding them with your attention anymore and you're not uh, further fueling the hindrances. So let's say there's anxiety. Um, instead of reacting negatively to the anxiety, you just experience the anxiety and you and you uh, you sort of take the the buy out of it, the fear out of it. So you take the the negative reaction, the problemizing, the fear of the fear out of it. So you stop being afraid of the anxiety and you see it for what it really is, is the sensations. And then, so this kind of like, uh, this kind of like process of, of uh, changing how you relate to the hindrances um, doesn't, uh, keep perpetuating the cycle or the sankharas. It doesn't keep adding fuel to it. It doesn't. It doesn't create more karma. And what it does is it allows for these things to come to a stop on their own. And uh, uh, developing the skill to do that, along with uh, the mindfulness or the, the wisdom at the point of contact, is. Um, is the correct approach for the, the Dhamma to to work and to realize the Dhamma and to know the Dhamma. But uh, um, the, the, the cool thing about the teaching of the Buddha is that another thing I heard Buddha Dasa say is that it's like, a, it's like a whole knitting together a whole piece of cloth. Um, uh, it's like, it's all inclusive. Like if you unravel one part of the teaching, the whole thing unravels. So all of this stuff, um, all of the four noble truths, all of the eightfold noble path is included in the cloth. So like we might be talking about one, one weird thing happened to my together mode or something. <laughs> Everyone, Everyone's sitting in a stadium right now. <laughs> That's so Greek. Yeah, we are Stoics now. Okay. <laughs> Let me see. Yeah, so it's all inclusive. So now I can't see people. I think something happened to the grid. Okay. I just changed it. Okay. Yeah. I just changed it to large grid. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, okay, so it's all inclusive. So you can't, if you unravel one part of it, the whole thing unravels. And uh, this is what the, happened in the West, especially with uh, insight meditation and um, concentration or like uh, or the practice of jhana or the practice of, uh, of relaxing or samadhi. Um, and there, there were... Uh, they were made to be two separate things. Like you either doing insight meditation, like a Vipassana, or you're doing Shamatha. And that's not how it works. They're the they're part of the same process. Um, to take one and separate it from the other is like just totally missing the point and mis misunderstanding the teaching of the Buddha. And then to, yeah, so, so to, to, to separate and to divide 
the teaching of the Buddha into all these specific methods is misunderstanding that the, the Dhamma is one method. It's not, oh, I'm practicing Metta now, or I'm practicing uh, Vipassana now, and I'm not doing Shamatha, or I'm practicing Shamatha now, or I'm practicing Anapanasati now and nothing else. Uh, it's all inclusive. Like, uh, to practice Anapanasati is to, um, is to uh, gladden the mind and is to get rid of hindrances. You cannot practice Anapanasati without gliding the mind and getting rid of hindrances. Otherwise, you're just going to be um, absorbed in hindrances and not uh, really practicing the breath and not really relaxing the body. So, like uh, each each teaching the Buddha gave is like it's like another way to express and maybe emphasizing a certain aspect of the Dhamma, but it's all part of the same teaching and it's all part of the same method. And it's all unified. Um, that that's that's a, another important thing about samadhi, is that <laughs> samadhi is translated into concentration when it that's entirely the wrong word for it. Samadhi is not concentration. And then we have these ideas in Western Buddhism of access concentration. So you you just single pointed the mind on one thing. If you're distracted, you bring it back, bring it back, bring it back. Until you develop, until it develops a momentum of access concentration, but that's not really uh, that's not really liberating. That's just kind of like something, some something that you developed to force the mind into. But but um, samadhi is really like a, it's it's much more enjoyable than that. Okay, it's like a kind of coming together of of all the of all the parts of, of of your mind everything becomes collected and when everything it's kind of like uh if a, if the water is uh disturbed and everything's um turbulent okay in the water it's going it's going to be unclear it's going to be white water and there's going to be waves and then uh what samadhi is is developing the skill for um, the activity of the waves to uh, still and come to a resting point and and collect itself together instead of splashing all over the place, splashing out here, losing bits over there. It comes to uh, resting. It, it rests in a state of collectedness. It rests in a state of unification. And then when it's unified, you can really see through it, through it clearly. Um, and uh, that's kind of like, that's uh, for sure an enjoyable experience. So it's a relaxing experience. It's not like, I'm concentrating on something. Like concentration is like what you need if you're studying for, um, if you're studying for the biology exam or something, you need to concentrate on, <laughs> on the which is also program. wrong. The way they approach or the way kids or we all learned this in school. I mean, it's it's just the wrong approach. It's like, uh, it's like hacking everything apart instead of giving things the chance to collect. Because this is what what uh, what na nature does if you let it just naturally unfold. But we need we have schedules and everything has to be militarized. I mean, look at the school system. It's it's uh, it's a military structure. It's not uh, right. So I'm it's not, not farming. I'm not... It's not you know. Are you are you Ger are you German, Beta? Yes. Oh, okay. Well, it's, it's really, it's really military Germany. there. That's like mm. the. the <laughs> I don't know what to, the English term is. You have to decide when you're like, you have to decide when you're like 14 what you're going like to do for the rest of your life. What do you mean? You have to decide when you're 14 what you're going to do for the rest of your life in Germany. Uh, at at the best when you're three or four years old. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
tell you to concentrate and they kind of scream at you to concentrate, but no one teaches you how to concentrate, you know, in school. They, they do uh, what? Con- concentration is it's fairly straightforward. It's just uh, if you're distracted, <laughs> okay, there's an object of meditation or an object that you're supposed to be studying in school. Uh, and there's that single pointed goal. And that's what you're supposed to be doing. And if you get distracted from it, simply come back and do it again. And that's how most uh, most of Western meditation is taught is, okay, now our object of meditation is the breath. And um, we're going to have a single pointed concentration on the breath. And we're distracted. We bring it back to the breath. So it, 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 what it does is it, is it loses the, the natural ease the natural collectedness and it loses the parts of um uh the anapana sutta that doesn't say um as i breathe in i concentrate on the breath it says as i breathe in i understand that i breathe in short or i know that i breathe in short as i breathe out long i understand that i bring out breathe out long so simply knowing that you're breathing having the recognition that you're breathing is much different than concentrating on the breath, on the tip of the nose or what, what not. That's a totally different thing. Oh, I know that I'm breathing in this moment instead of forgetting to it, forgetting that you're breathing, instead of being uh, asleep to the fact that you're breathing. You wake up to the fact that you're breathing. And that's, that's way easier. That's way simpler. And that's like, that's much more natural. And then that, then you can actually calm down around the fact that you're breathing and take deeper breaths long steady breaths and then uh and then you know pay attention to the ayatanas pay attention to the body pay attention to the tensions and start to relax the tensions um so it's all inclusive uh okay yeah does anyone have anything to say about that anything they want to add questions Feel free to go ahead. Can you guys hear me well or no? Yeah, we can hear you. Yeah, I wanted to ask actually about uh, about your thoughts on uh, restlessness. I know mm-hmm. that wasn't the Anapanas. Uh, yeah, I wanted to talk about like what is restlessness in the sense, is it? the impatience for uh, to gain some spiritual attainment or realization like is there some like because that's what i feel in myself that there's a restless uh seeking for this uh experience or because all like i'm constantly hearing this intellectual stuff reading this intellectual stuff and i'm like have this kind of thing emerge underneath all of that it's like this restless drive that's actually mean i'm seeing it more as like impatience and it's actually quite uh unwholesome does that make sense yeah so um uh most people's restlessness um is not out of um spiritual attainment or spiritual ideas so your restlessness is simply um, a misunderstanding of the practice or the Dhamma. And uh, although the Dhamma can get very intricate and very uh, very elaborate, especially in like advanced, it rather than elaborate, subtle. So there are uh, greater and finer and finer subtleties to our experience that we can discover for ourselves. So if you read about these finer and finer subtleties to our experience, um, and then you crave for them, you're misunderstanding uh, the true meaning of them. What it's telling you is like, uh, oh, look for yourself at what's going on. And then you can uh, develop a skill and a precision to perceive things with it uh, greater clarity and greater subtlety. Um, so that's not, 
it's not it's not as if uh these things like you read about these things and you're like oh that's not how i'm experiencing or that's not how it feels like for me and now i'm doing something wrong no it just means uh it's just telling you there is a fruit to the practice a fruit that you have to see for yourself and what's the practice is very simple it's looking at the ayatanas looking at your experience uh and then having the a mind fit for work to do so so in order to have a mind fit for work, uh, you can't be uh, restless and worried. So let's deal with feeling restless and worried first. We're feeling restless and worried. And uh, uh, because of whatever reason that the mind is dreaming up in this moment, um, and then we wake up to the fact, oh, I'm fabricating um, future attainments or I'm fabricating a concept whether it's spiritual Dhamma related or not. And I'm, and I'm bringing it up artificially and superimposing it onto my experience and it's causing me restlessness. So in that moment, the practice is to see that clearly what the mind is doing and how it's causing you to be restless. And then you can simply stop doing that and uh, take a deep breath and relax. And then, ah, now I can continue looking at things for how they are. Um, so uh, this is this is kind of some, a skill that you develop through uh, seeing how things arise. But to see how things arise, you have to pay attention to them. You can't be dreaming about about future situations or uh, dreaming about uh, something you read about. That's why Buddha Dasa says, like the Dhamma is not something you read about. If something you read about is causing you restlessness, whether it's like something you read about in the Dhamma or not. That's not the Dhamma. That's just something you read about. That's something the mind is dreaming up. Uh, does that make sense? So it's not that you have to understand that what's causing you restlessness, you believe it to be the Dhamma. It's not the Dhamma. It's something that your mind is imagining. It's something you read about. It's not something that you saw for yourself and experiencing. Um, but, but these things can be good in the sense that, oh, there is a, there's further fruit to the practice. Um, to keep practicing, to keep keep repeating, to keep looking at your experience, um, but you're you're not going to gain a knowledge through a book. And then believing that you'll gain the knowledge through a book, and then expecting your experience to be be like that after you read it, it's kind of misunderstanding how this practice works, of like seeing for yourself uh, 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 how things are and how they arise and pass away. And how imper how impersonal it is, how you can't find a self in it. Um, so yeah, I hope that helps. I think. Well, I think uh, oh, go, go ahead. Go ahead, John. No, no, yeah, go, go. No <laughs> Okay, I'll, I'll go. I'll go then. <laughs> I I think uh, I think retreat can be really helpful, or like setting up situations that are retreat like because like if you literally have nowhere to go and nothing to do like the, the restlessness it goes away after a couple of days like that's it's been my my experience and then and once you get over that it's like okay it might it might come back again but you've experienced it once and uh yeah i, I don't know if you if you've ever like been on a retreat or like or if you create a situation where you have a good environment for practice basically yeah, I'm, uh, I, I've thought about that too, and I, I'm going to, uh, have you guys heard of Amavarati in, in England? It's like a forest high place. I'm going there on Friday, or on Saturday for like a month, because I know I really need this environment. I've seen this big problem, it's a big problem for me, so yeah, what you're saying is pretty spot on. Yeah, but uh, I mean, Amar Amaravati still can, it can be pretty busy in its own way, you know, because like it's still, a, it's a functioning monastery and, you know, so like, you know, it, it could help, but it could also still be opportunities. Uh, but just if you feel pressured, like you have to do something when you're in a monastery, you don't actually have to, you know, you still can, you know, you can just take time for yourself and go for a walk or whatever, you know, because it's a, it's a very active monastery. 
what exactly do you, is a retreat for you? Like a, a silent, a silence retreat or something I mean, like I, that? Like I, I wouldn't, I, I don't think I would recommend it doing it again because like, but that's just what I did and what my exposure was. But now what I do generally is I just go into nature and just sit for a while because eventually the mind just gets tired of it, you know, and eventually the thoughts slow down and then you don't have to like, you know, if, if the thoughts, if the thoughts slow down enough, uh, and just, you just watch them sort of disappear, like it can be really helpful. Um, like actually experiencing that. And in, in my experience, it's like, you just, you see the same stuff over and over and over again. And you keep reminding yourself, I really have nowhere to go and nothing to do right now. Cause I, I'm just going to sit under this damn tree and <laughs> there's nowhere else to go, <laughs> you know? You can also find that if you like, take off your shirt and 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 like you wear shorts and you go lay down under the tree like in some grass like just bare skin you'll find so many irritations and so many like restlessness syndromes where you want to itch you want to scratch you think something is biting you you think you want to move and then you can just observe that and and you and you can let go at each one of them and you can see that restlessness is nothing it's just it just comes and goes it's like an itch it comes and goes so you become familiar with it and you develop like a skill of of seeing through it it's like, almost like a retreat but like a mini retreat by yourself just laying down and, and chilling out like in nature joe said in nature yeah that's really helpful yeah i love i love doing that i love laying down and then and just don't even keep track of time either mm. you know just keep just keep laying there and eventually like like things start happening you know yeah, so like you want to get yourself into a state of comfort. Um, if if something's um, if something's causing you irritation, uh, too much irritation to then uh, is beneficial. Then the wise thing to do is to uh, put yourself into a more comfortable position. Um, jhana is about is about uh, coming to a state of of uh restful awake vibrant comfort um and uh <clears throat> uh think, thinking these wholesome thoughts is really helpful for that like really to recognize not just to say it but to see clearly that you have nothing to do and nowhere to go like right now there's literally nothing you have to worry about you can just sit you can literally sit here you don't have to worry about anything you don't have to think about anything. There's nothing you need to do and nowhere you need to go. So you can relax. Like, they, they, like it's not like you're making it up. It's like literally for, for a fact, there's nothing you need to do right now. You're just sitting in here talking with some friends. Like what else is there to do? For me, it's it's to look at Veda's name, and I, I keep reading Vega. I don't know if any of you other guys know Street Fighter, <laughs> but every time I see Veda, I, I keep seeing a G there. <laughs> it's my little distraction. <clears throat> Where about are you located, Kathol? Because you're going to Marathi. I'm I'm from London. It's like one hour and a half away from here. Uh, I'm in uh, I'm in Glasgow right now, but I'm getting a bus down to London tonight, and uh, I'll be staying in London. I'll be in London until Saturday. I have to go. To, I don't even. Uh, I have to figure out how to get to Berkhamstad, isn't it? Berkhamstad is where Amavrati is. <laughs> yeah, so I'll be there on Saturday though. But I'll be in London for a couple of days. Nice. Parker, is there anything you? Uh, you'd like to share about um, how to deal with the hindrance of uh, restlessness and worry? Um, the one story maybe. Dom Rado tells is helpful with um, the idea of the farmer uh, coming back from a long day's uh, work. It's dark out now, and he goes to lie down in his bag or sleeping bed or his bed or whatever, and for a moment, he's relaxed, but then he has the. There's some anxiety that arises. He's not really aware of the anxiety, and the thought comes up: 
oh, I need to go fix the fence. That's why I'm anxious. That's why I'm restless. And then so the farmer gets up thinking that going and fixing the fence will solve the restlessness, will fix the restlessness. He goes and fixes the fence and he comes back to bed. And maybe because of all the exercise, he's a little more relaxed. But the thought still arises. The restlessness is still there. And what this is getting at is restlessness is not... Uh, it's not some object that the mind needs to get. It's it's the other way around. It's the mind thinks it needs something to do, somewhere to go, nowhere to go. But really, in reality, there isn't anywhere to go, like Scott was saying. Uh, right. So look so, for some object. Maybe there's a phone nearby, and there will be some restlessness. Oh, by looking at the phone and scrolling through Instagram, that'll solve the restlessness. That's what the the instinctual, irrational processing things but right. if we're awake to that we can see the restlessness and we don't even need to grab the phone we can right. just be satisfied and throw it out directly right so the problem is uh not the thing that you think is making you restless but it's the restlessness itself so like in, in your case katal the 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 going and fixing the fence would be some uh spiritual thing you I, attainment or uh thing you read about in the Dhamma, you think that's what caught, that's what's making you restless. But no, you're just restless. The problem is that the core, the root of the problem is the restlessness. And then, uh, then we'll assign reasons for why we are restless. Um, and then we, we have solutions for why we're are restless that don't work. Um, so like we think that doing this thing uh attain, attaining this getting this thing will fix the restlessness but we find ourselves um scrolling through instagram or whatever fixing the fence as restless as we were before and afterwards we are restless so being restless is the is what needs to be seen not why am i restless and this is how you can start to deconstruct restlessness itself and see clearly what restlessness actually is um um, again, so yeah, uh, wakey, wakey, uh, looking at what actually is going on and remembering to do that over and over. Like, oh, my mind has gone into restlessness and worry again. Um, let me see clearly what's going on right now. Let me see how this is happening. How, how did, how, how uh, what were the causes and conditions for this to happen? I was, uh, wasn't sitting here uh, remembering that I have nothing to do, nowhere to go. And then and as can, yeah. for spiritual materialism, like Scott was saying earlier, an analogy to look at it is like looking at a map, like a road map. All right. I need to get I need to get from point A to point B. And the road map <laughs> says you take two right turns, two left turns uh, or whatever to get there. And. The way that one who is uh, experiencing spiritual materialism is thinking about it is having some place on the map and wanting to get there and wishing to get there. Um, but they're not actually taking the steps to drive and look what's going on right now. What's the turn right now in this direction? Okay, I'm going straight and going right. Okay, I'm turning right. I'm going forward now. And this speaks to... Uh, what Scott was saying about getting out of the books, getting out of the concepts that we can get greedy for, crave for, and get into this present moment. And we can plan about becoming enlightened all we want, but that won't help. What we can do is see right now, uh, is there wisdom? Do I feel light? And apply that to right now. Uh, how do I feel right now? Is there satisfaction right now? And that's what needs to be done, not the planning as we've been conditioned to do. Check in. Thanks, guys. That was actually really very, very helpful. I think what'll be really cool for being at, at Amravati too is like is just being around other people because it's kind of like the opposite of what we're talking about a little bit, but like it can be so helpful to just see how other wise people act just on a daily basis because a lot of this can get really theoretical and, and if we're all practicing on our own and we only meet up on skype 
we have, you know, 23 other hours to just do whatever. But like when you're living in a place with other practitioners, you're like, you're on, you know, like it, it really, and, and you also realize you're like, wow, I really set up conditions for this one month for myself to be absolutely optimal. Like, I'm really going to take advantage of this. And I'm really going to practice uh, really diligently. And um, yeah, I, I think it'd be, I'm, I'm a little bit jealous because I, I really want to go to Amravati sometime. <laughs> yes, no ways the optimization is just this present moment. Just this right now, I'm going to be satisfied. Just right yeah, now, you know, I'm going to uh, be yeah. optimal. It doesn't have to be a long-term thing. Like, we can get ourselves stuck into thinking. Yeah, you don't have to be on a retreat to practice. Actually, the pra the only time it, like, the practice will only really work and make changes if you do it all the time. And when, yeah. you, like, every time you literally, every time you literally remember to do it, and most importantly, right now. Are you practicing right now? Or are you just thinking about it? <laughs> and look at the are word retreat. Retreat is you're in a battle, you're fighting, and you're you're retreating. You're taking you're going away from the battle. So let it be something like that. I get to take off. I get to have a vacation. Really relax. Look at it as a time to relax and just chill. I think the point was like the nobility rubs off like it's just hanging out with like noble dudes as this is why we do the sangha that's the benefit of the retreat as i think joe mentioned just like hanging around wise people it, it will rub off it's not about like i wouldn't say it's just like being very mindful of what everyone's doing but but it, it will just randomly rub off it's, it's impossible not to yeah it's impossible to like describe i mean the feeling when you are in person. I don't know what it is. I mean, you get it a little bit on Skype, but it's it's it just is different, you know, that there's some something in the air or something. It's like maybe magical thinking or whatever, but <laughs> we are all connected. Veda, I'm, I'm curious, are you into like farming and permaculture and stuff? Is that why you asked about it? Uh, that's a you're triggering a response here. Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, that would be that would be probably one really really uh, interesting goal in the world. Still, I mean, imagine you have a monastery, like maybe Theravadan or Chan or something like this, good mixed up. And they're completely in a perma embedded in a permaculture or something like this, without even having to rely on uh, money or whatever. That would be a great tool for Buddhism. So, for myself, I don't know. It's probably not very doable here in Germany because of the climate. I mean, the like Sepp Holzer. Do you know him? Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, he says, or uh, Wolf Dieter Storl, or people like this. Wolf Dieter Storl. Who? Wolf Dieter Storl. No, I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, what, but what do you think makes it not possible about the climate? I mean, like, you know, like su supporting ourselves physically with food is not, it's not that hard if you put like effort into it. Uh, the, the, the problem in this climate is uh, the, the tools. I mean, the, how do you call this? Like the first investment barrier, yeah. like, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, the, the hurdle get over the tools and the seeds and all uh, all the, those things i mean if you have like tropical climate you just well i think it, i think it's a i think it's a mental hurdle too of like like you don't have to be 100 percent self-sufficient i mean like you know it, it it can be it can be gradual and you like it, it is nice to a little bit rely on on community and stuff and not have to produce everything because like yeah. i i had a, i had a year where like I was really hardcore about it and was like, all right, this year I'm only eating shit that I produce. I'm not, I'm not going to the grocery store. And yeah. it's, it's definitely, it's definitely doable. I mean, I was in Sweden, you know, and, uh, it's, it's definitely doable, 
if you put your full effort into it, which is believable because our ancestors somehow did it and we have fossil fuels to help us out and like uh, all uh, of the uh. reading material you can believe. So it's definitely pretty easily possible. But the question is, is like, and, and then what? So you get to the top of the mountain and you create this new storyline of like, oh, I'm going to be so happy uh, if uh, uh, uh. Uh, there's this, you know, beautiful community or whatever. And it's like, well, what, I mean, what, what am I doing right now? You know, like, like, where am I at? And like, where are the people around me like? Because there's no separate community, you know, there's no like, like little tiny, you know, I call it like a Buddha field. This is like the, the, the dream that we have, right? Uh, but there's nothing wrong with integrating into like the, the greater community. At least I've, I've come to that in my own thing where I really enjoy buying food off of friends that like uh, also produce food in yeah, a way that yeah. I know is good. Uh, that's Just completely lost in Germany. The All the old village structures and things like that, the, pol uh, the, the politics made it completely impossible to sustain this. So there are... It's, yeah, but I mean, I, I, I know some people who are like, who are doing some stuff and yeah, there, are certain, yeah. there are certain, there are certain areas that you can, that you can live in, these kind of like hippie enclaves. Uh, that you find people trying to regenerate that. But you're right, the traditional knowledge, it's lost everywhere, basically. Oops. Ah, okay. My my screen turned off. Sorry. But I think, yeah, but I think I think it's interesting, like, like yeah, in integrating, you know, not being so... Because it, it is a feeling that I get when I, when I visit Theravada monasteries, there is sort of this feeling of, like, well, this is totally dependence on these, I mean, these Thai ladies, really, that keep it going, you know, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's kind of the, the yeah. whole thing. And you're like, wait a minute, like, I, I don't know if this is like, there, mu there must be some other way to, to do this. Because is it really that bad to produce our own food? Like, uh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> Joe, let us is continue this another time, guys. I have to go. Yeah. I really appreciate you all. Love Bye. to the Sangha. Till next time. Yeah. Bye bye. See you next time. Bye, Beta. Bye. I haven't done much thinking about it, but my understanding is that the uh, uh, the way of alms round and receiving donations from the lay was intentional. Uh, that it was by design. Yeah, yeah. yeah, in, yeah. In, Thai, in Thailand. But I think it, I'm just saying it's broken in the West because, sure. like, uh, in the West, what happens is that, like, they're not going on alms round like people have to and and there is a lot of like saving food and and you get you know it, it's just it's not the same culture it would be different if it was like how it is in thailand i mean you see the the people there where they i mean they go out you know if you've ever been to thailand or these places they i mean they go out every day and just get whatever they get and and that was also only, a prerequisite they only get a rotten banana that day that's that's what they eat you know <laughs> Yes, in the Buddhist time also that uh, that was already the culture, right? These this all around there were already people doing that and begging in the West. That isn't the case. Yeah. Uh, so that goes more to your point of adjusting to the culture around you. There's a there's a couple places that go on alms round though. There's one place I heard about in Washington that uh, they go on alms round and they go to like a non-Buddhist area and the local community has been so inspired that they you know, support them and not everybody answers their door for them because they're not Buddhist, but uh, it still works for them that they just, you know, go on alms round and keep it traditional that way. You've probably heard the story of Ajahn Sumedho when he was asking or going to the West, he was worried that they wouldn't have any supporters. Uh, and he was mentioning this to Ajahn Chah and Ajahn Chah's response, you mean... There are, there are no friendly people in the West. There are yeah. no nice people in the West. So uh, I haven't experienced it firsthand, but I've heard similar stories where when people see monks and obviously take some time to adjust and see that they're friendly and see that they're kind people, that uh, the lays will sort of uh, come around to the idea of offering. Yeah, because I mean, like, how bad is it to just offer a little bit of extra food? You see how it, like, came across, you know, is that, like, whenever I make food for myself, especially since I'm a farmer and I have massive excess of food always, 
if somebody came to my door and was like, hey, could I have a little bit extra? I'd be like, sure, go ahead, you know? Cause like, that's the kind of like abundance that you have when you have that sort of a like lifestyle and culture. And the majority of people in history are living like that, where they have an excess of food because it's a security measure. If you're growing food for yourself, you have to grow extra because like there's gonna be a year where it just goes shitty. So you always grow like twice or three times as much. And you, whenever you're making food for yourself, you're like, ah, oh, whatever, I'll just feed the pigs, whatever, I don't eat, you know? Uh, so instead of feeding the pigs, you're like, oh, great. I get like some life advice from this dude who just shows up at my door. Like, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> I would love that. Things well, are also very spread out with cars and monks obviously don't drive cars. So, um, no. that's yeah. Our society has done a really good job of like forcing us to spread spread out because <laughs> like it's another thing you notice in these other countries is you're like wow you can get gas at like a convenience store and it, and they just they'll sell it to you in like a you know like one liter empty water bottle you know and and it's like every little small village every couple miles has a store like this. And like they don't have to go to the city because it's just, you know, it's so much more tight knit. And like it used to be like that for us too. But then we decided ah, efficiency and economies of scale. And we want to efficiently get people, you know, to live their lives. So we, we changed it. And <laughs> just how it is. Yeah. The, the cool thing about uh, how different and how how much change has happened over the uh, history of human civilization and how this structure of society has fundamentally changed um, the structure of our uh, experience is exactly the same so how the ayatanas function how the sixth sense basis function how how consciousness works how um, craving and dukkha works it literally all works the same. So um, the beauty is that um, uh, the, the Buddha discovered this um, Dhamma, um, the science of our experience, and it applies right now in this moment as well. So there may be like external factors that are different or cultural factors that are different in terms of how, how like, uh, how um, monks live or how they operate in any given society. But uh, the heart of the Dhamma isn't about the, the cultural um, effects or the cultural systems. Um, the heart of the Dhamma is experiencing uh, experiencing the wisdom and the insight uh, of how our fundamental experience operates and how it's constructed and how how dukkha arises and how it comes to an end um, it's exactly the same and that that's like very profound that some guy living 2,500 years ago, um, discovered this, and to this very day, um, the heart of the Dhamma is still being taught, and the heart of the Dhamma can still be realized for yourself right now, um, irrespective of whatever living condition you, you're in. Like, um, So I think the main thing with like uh, traditional Buddhist, uh, like religious structures, is that um, people might think like, "Oh, if I really want to take this seriously, then I have to be a monk, or else like I cannot realize the Dhamma." But anyone can realize the Dhamma, and Buddha does uh, said this explicitly. And anyone who understands like what the practice actually is realizes that. Um, yeah, it doesn't really matter your life circumstance. 
the same things are working the same way. It's like it's literally the natural law, the law of nature. It's the 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 law of dependent origination, which everything else is a subset of that, or it's extrapolation of that. So all laws fall un under this law. Um, so like every every law of physics, for instance, falls under the law of dependent origination. Every chemical reaction, every every uh, interplay of energies, every uh, thermodynamic law, all is under dependent origination and is consistent with dependent origination. So you can see that this teaching is consistent with actual like uh, material science as well as spiritual law and uh and uh, uh the law of um dukkha dukkha niroda and the so um it, it's profoundly uh all inclusive like this is like this is the the god of a scientist like uh if you want to like if, if you want to think of god in that sense like that's how you should think of god something that applies everywhere to every situation um so instead of like some kind of entity that's uh created something and then um rules over it um that's no God. That's not. That wouldn't really be God. God is something that's. It's like the fundamental law that applies to every situation. Um, so it's not really like a, a Western God or like a a God that um, most Christians would think about God as. But uh, it is uh, God in that sense. That sense that if you act out of ignorance of the law of dependent origination or the natural law. You, you act in in uh, in uh, if you act in accordance to to the law, you understand the law, you know the law, like you're wise to the law, then uh you're essentially invincible from the effects of the law. So if you understand the law of dependent origination, you're not a victim to the origination of dukkha without understanding how it arises. So uh, people who are experiencing dukkha, the first question they ask is why? Why am I experiencing dukkha? But that's not the that's not the real question. The real question is how am I experiencing dukkha? How am I suffering? How does this experience work? How does suffering arise? What causes suffering? These are the questions that lead to the end of suffering. The question why is there suffering? Like if you imagine some kind of God that's benevolent, you would think, why would God allow this? Why would God allow all this suffering to happen on earth? What kind of God would allow children to be um, hurt and stuff like that? But that's not that's not the way the law works. The law is just the law. And uh, it applies to good, the good and the bad. So uh, the real question is how um, does Dukkha arise? And then you can see that um, um, any like quote unquote bad action that a human has taken um, upon other humans or animals is uh, from it arises from the ignorance of how to end their own dukkha because um, someone who uh, so someone who um, acts uh, violently is suffering from their own ill will um, instead of experiencing the um, the satisfaction um, of the truth of the Dhamma 
which is completely fulfilling and leaves you uh, not wanting to kill anyone, not wanting to rape anyone, not wanting to steal anything from anyone, and uh, all those other precepts. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, this is how it functions. And then uh, you can look at things realistically like that instead of like fantasizing about some God that like now you hate or something or like how did this God allow this or asking why philosophically you understand how this things happen and you can understand how to end it for yourself. Um, and that's, that's all you can do. And that's, that's enough. Like that's the only thing that's worth doing is ending your own suffering because you don't experience anyone else's suffering. You only experience your own suffering. All right. Bye Carl. Um, yeah. So I think that's it for me. If anyone has another question, we can keep this going. Uh, or if, Something uh, you guys want to talk about uh, other than that. I think that's a good note to end it on. Yeah, it's man. Wonderful. It's been great. Thank great you seeing you, Scott. Everybody. Joe, yeah. Cathal, Robert, you. Carl, and Ricardo. I don't know if Ricardo's listening. Uh, I've never met Ricardo, but uh, good to have you here. Welcome. He sent the heart, so. Great. Right. Well, maybe see you again. All right. All right. Take care, guys. Bye, guys. Bye, guys. For those, Bye. For those watching on the YouTube, you can uh, click below in the description and join these calls. Everyone's welcome. Uh, they have, happen every Wednesday at noon here, Pacific time, I think, in Arizona, California time. Um, all the times and stuff are in the description. So, all right, that's it.